I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Bam City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, More of the Holy Spirit 2022. Jesus described the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a moment when his disciples would receive power. More than 2,000 years later, many of us are left feeling powerless, left to lives devoid of signs or wonders, healing or prophecy, breakthrough or freedom. Where is this power Jesus promised? We've just finished an ongoing series all about doctrine and orthodoxy, or what the church has historically called right belief. And before we ended that series, we mentioned something important. Yes, what you believe really matters. Having your doctrine and your theology submitted to Jesus and to the Scriptures is fundamental to practicing the way of Jesus. But you spend a few weeks going on and on about doctrine, and some of us can't help but think of certain people we've known. People who seemed to have all the right doctrine, who knew a lot about the Bible, who had the very best, most sophisticated theological systems, and maybe they could even quote scholars and theologians at will, conjure up Bible verses as need necessitated, maybe they could refute heresy with airtight efficiency, and maybe they weren't much like Jesus at all. Or maybe some of us thought of someone, maybe some of us have been someone, with a lot of the right belief, maybe most of the right belief, but has yet to experience significant, life-changing intimacy with the living God. So, we've always been a church big on Bible and theology, uh, dedicated to uncompromising orthodoxy, submitted to the kingship of Jesus. We talk about it all the time. But is that all we are? Is that all there is for those of us who follow Jesus? Or can or can our little family be more than an academy for Bible and theology? Can this be a place where we actually show up expecting God's presence, expecting things like signs and wonders, expecting that we will hear from God Himself and experience incredible intimacy with God? A place of study and learning and commitment to the Scriptures? Yes, absolutely, that will never change. And also, a place of prophecy, words of wisdom and knowledge and healing and worship with wild abandon. Tonight we're going to begin a series that will allow our church to wade further into the waters of this question. This is something that we did several years ago, and at the end of that series, as we talked about the Holy Spirit, it dawned on us that it's been quite a while, and the church has been through a lot during that time. So we're going to spend just a few weeks talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, what it means to hear from God, and then communicate what you heard from God to other people, which is something called prophecy. And we're going to spend an evening putting these things in practice together. There's a bit of work to do tonight. Are you guys all right? You ready to get into it? Wow, there was a woo and a whistle, a woo whistle. Thanks. So let's start with this. Who is the Holy Spirit? If you're taking notes, start here. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. And this comes from a massive work by scholar Gordon Fee. It is, I think, probably the most simple, helpful way to describe the person of the Holy Spirit. Or put another way, the Holy Spirit is God's person, God's power, and God's presence. At the end of our Uncompromising Orthodoxy series, we talked about the way that Jesus, when talking about the Spirit of God, He referred to the Spirit as a He, not an It. And by that, we don't mean to argue that the Spirit is human or even male per se, but that the Spirit is a person, not an abstract concept 
or a force. And that matters because you can engage in an active and dynamic relationship with a person, which is good news. You can't be in relationship with a conceptual force. So the Spirit is God's person, and He is also God's power. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, and let's read uh, beginning with verse 30. This is a scene from the Christmas story. The Christmas story in, what is it, March? Yeah, in March. Oh, by the way, March 13th. Did you guys know it's Patrick's birthday today? Yeah, that's right. He's, he's walking around back there doing errands as the pastor of operations, and he doesn't know what's going on, but some people looked at him, and he went like this. So afterward, make sure you tell him happy birthday. Happy birthday. 41 years young. My God. My God. Comes for us all. Death, that is. <laughs> all right. Speaking of death, here's the Christmas story. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 30. The angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants, that's Israel, forever. His kingdom will never end. So in context, this messenger or angel from Yahweh is telling this poor, ordinary teenage girl that she is going to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah, Israel's anointed Savior King. God promised a long time ago that the Messiah was going to be David's descendant, and that part is covered, says the angel. But notice, we learn that he will also be called the Son of the Most High, which is weird. So Mary has questions. Look at verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Simon Ponsonby, who's an Oxford theologian, writes of this passage, it is the Holy Spirit as the immediate divine executive, the agent of God's will, who weds the eternal Son with mortal humanity. The creative spirit who hovers over creation overshadows Mary, creating, conceiving, and connecting God and blood, making out of Mary's matter what was not there before. The Spirit performs a regenerative and recreative work. This new human life born of Mary is the old humanity from Adam's seed, which is joined to the eternal divinity of the Son by the action of the Spirit. It's really wordy, I get it, but notice the link in this story from Luke between power and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be on Mary, and then in the language of the author, the power of the Most High will envelop her. Now, this is one amongst many examples in the Scriptures where power and Spirit are synonymous. Let me show you another one. Turn over just a page or two to the right to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, when you're there, skip down to verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So the same Spirit that was on Mary is now on Jesus. Now watch this. Turn over to chapter 4 and read verse 1. After that happened, the Spirit, the dove, all that, Luke 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Skip down to verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. 
And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues. Everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now this is a prophecy from Isaiah 61, hundreds of years before Jesus. And Jesus reads this, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Now, this is where we draw our language about the Messiah, which is a word that literally means anointed one. In the ancient world, there were customs of anointing individuals with oil. Oil would be poured out over a person as a symbol of that person being anointed with God's spirit. Lots of powerful, symbolic, visual, aesthetic imagery. God is really big on that stuff. And this was this profound, artistic symbol of God's unique work in and through a given person. So the term Messiah was a title used to describe God's one person on a coming day on whom God's spirit would be to do something unique and powerful for all the world. This is, in other words, from Isaiah 61, a prophecy about the Messiah. So the story goes on. Look again, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is Luke, the author's way of saying that Jesus is the long-awaited anointed one or Messiah. Jesus is that one spoke of in Isaiah 61 for whom Israel had been waiting for centuries. Now that probably makes enough sense to most of us, especially if you've been you know, around the Bible for a little while, but stay with me for this. According to Luke, the way that Jesus accomplishes the work of the Messiah, preaching the gospel, healing the blind, setting people free, the way that he does this is, as we read in verse 14, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you guys to bear with me for the next few minutes. We're going to do some theology work. Are you still all right? Thinking caps on? You feel sharp? Great. Thank you so much. Um, please stay with me. It, payoff is coming. This is crucial. Starting here in Luke 4 and moving on through the subsequent passages of the biographies of Jesus, the reader finds story after story of Jesus doing miraculous things, right? You probably heard these things before. The sick get healed, blind people get their sight back, paralyzed people that can't walk or stand, they get up and walk away. Jesus knows these incredible things that should be impossible for him to know about people's lives and their backstories. Dead people get resuscitated, weird, wild stuff. Now you, the reader, are left to interpret these stories really in one of two ways. These are the popular interpretations of the miracle stories in the Gospels. Interpretation number one, if you're taking notes, is that people interpret these stories as proof that Jesus is God. And this has been the, the popular reading of these stories, in, at least in the Western world, for about 300 years or so. See, prior to the Enlightenment, 
It was more common for ordinary people to entertain a spiritual worldview. Uh, ordinary natural phenomenons for which there were yet no scientific explanations were just attributed by default to the involvement or outworking of God or gods or whatever. So prior to the 17th and 18th centuries, belief in a spiritual realm, belief in supernatural phenomena were sort of taken for granted. That was baseline generic worldview for most people in the Western world. Post-enlightenment, many of those same people now had scientific explanations for why the sun came up or why crops grew, which inevitably led to a more widespread secular or non-spiritual understanding of the world. Now, don't get me wrong, scientific explanations for solar systems and photosynthesis are good. Nothing wrong with either. We're not afraid of those. Big on science. We're fans. We like it. And there are, and have been for centuries, incredible scientific minds with deep commitment to Jesus and the Scriptures. That's nothing new. We didn't make it up either. But the point is that after the Enlightenment, there rose categories to describe certain modes of understanding and describing the world and life in the world. So you had supernatural, or natural rather, and then supernatural. Natural meaning an event that is governed by scientific laws and principles. And then supernatural or supranatural, which means above natural, uh, without natural explanation. It is miraculous, in other words. And in the post-enlightenment world uh, of these disparate categories, there rose an anti-supernatural sentiment. The idea was basically like, well, we used to think that these things were spiritual or they had to do with God or gods. But now we know better. We, we don't need miraculous or divine explanations for things that we can understand with scientific categories. And this wasn't necessarily an atheistic worldview. It was more like something called deism, uh, which was the worldview on which America was founded. It goes something like this. Well, you know, God or gods may exist, but whatever he, she, or it is, it isn't involved in the day-to-day -day mechanics of the cosmos. We have other ways of explaining those things without needing God to understand them. So imagine the effect that this new understanding, a naturalistic worldview, had on the way that we read the Gospels. If the supernatural worldview is no longer tenable, and if Jesus' supernatural feats were what proved that He was God, then it logically follows that Jesus was not God. So in the wake of all that, Christians started freaking out. For the majority of Westerners, a core necessary tenet of their faith was being called into question and uh, dismissed by the populace. And with no rebuttal to speak of, they simply directed the attention of naysayers back to the Gospels, which was sort of the debate equivalent of going, no, uh, you know. So they'd be like, look, no, no, see, it's right here. He does the miracles. It's, it's right there in the story. He must be God. And while that approach was likely well-meaning, and while all disciples of Jesus have always held that He is indeed the embodiment of the Creator God, that defense that the miracles are what makes Jesus God presents a handful of big, big problems. For one, Jesus is not the only person in the Bible story to do miracles. Heck, Elijah is one of the characters in the Bible who does lots of the exact same miracles 
as Jesus. And no one argues that Elijah was God. We hold that he was a prophet. He was anointed. The Spirit of God was on him. Even after Jesus, his followers go on to do all the same kinds of miraculous things that Jesus did. No one argues that Peter or Paul were God. In fact, when amazed crowds attempt to worship them in the story, they reject it and say specifically, no, 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 don't do, don't do that, you know. That's them looking for a lightning bolt. God is not Zeus or anything. That's just a joke. And to this day, all around the world, we still hear and still read and see stories of miraculous things being accomplished by disciples of Jesus in the name of Jesus. I have seen them myself. And we don't argue that modern Christians or missionaries or evangelists are God in the flesh. Instead, we believe that the Spirit of God was and is at work in and through these people. So, all that to say, the second, and I would argue better way, that many scholars have argued for reading the miracle stories of Jesus is that they are signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. Through God's anointed one, his Messiah, on whom the Spirit rests, the kingdom of God is arriving in power. So when Jesus does miracles, it's not primarily to demonstrate that he is God, though he is. Um, and some of that inevitably happens in the process. Instead, when Jesus does miracles, it is to demonstrate that the long-awaited kingdom of God in which the sick are healed and the blind see and people are set free, it has finally begun to arrive. So if we were to ask the question, great, that's, what, that's why Jesus does the miracles. How does Jesus perform miracles? The answer is not, oh, easy because he's God. The answer is just like Luke wrote, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, stay with me. We're almost out of the theological woods. The New Testament teaches that when God became human in Jesus, He set aside His God powers, as it were, in order to stoop to full humanness. This is not something we made up. Paul talks about it at length. He said that Jesus was in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So, in essence, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent. But Jesus was subject to the limitations of a human being. He had to learn and grow in knowledge, just like the rest of us. He had to ask questions you know, to which he had no answers until someone told him. He was in one place at a time, not omnipresent. He got tired, he had to rest, and in the story, he even dies. When God became human in Jesus, he set aside his omni-power, his God-power. He emptied himself in Paul's language. One of my professors used to describe it by saying that Jesus laid down the God card. So when Jesus is tempted in the desert, if you know that story, the first temptation is to turn stones into bread, which is a weird thing to tempt someone with. Uh, is either being hungry or eating bread sinful? No. The sin is not the feat of turning stones into bread per se, not eating bread, not being hungry. The sin would be to pick the God card back up. And here's where I'm going with all this. For many of us, Jesus emptying himself is not our default reading of the miracle stories. Many of us can't help but read Jesus' godness into those stories, and we inevitably take them to describe things of which only Jesus was uniquely capable. So look at it this way. Here's a clip of some guy who uh, skateboards uh, doing something called dropping in vert. 
right? In theory, da-da-da. Wow, look, it looks so uh, seamless, easy. Um, here's a clip of me doing the exact same thing really well. Now, <laughs> to the naked eye, it's hard to tell, but if you look closely, you can see those two clips are actually different. And as an aside, uh, I've realized that I found some reason to show that clip of me getting a concussion every year, but I missed 2021, so it's coming again later to make up for the time that we missed. Now, most of us, I wager, watch this Tony Hawk guy with resigned acceptance. You know, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, Tony Hawk. He seems to be really coming along, bright future ahead as a skateboarder. But we watch him and we think, consciously or subconsciously, he can do something that we fundamentally cannot do. And most of us assume our attempt will look more like the second clip simply by way of us not being Tony Hawk. Uh, unless you can do that. If so, great. Apparently, I need help. But if Jesus was truly a human being, it wasn't a trick, it wasn't a ruse, it wasn't a put-on, from where did he get his power to do miracles, if not just in and of himself, just by virtue of being God? If that's not how he did it, then how? And the answer to that question across church history has been really simple. He did them through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you read these stories of the sick being healed, the blind receiving sight, even dead people being resuscitated, all that, don't read them and think, well, sure, the guy doing all that is also God, so easy. He was, but that's not how he did it. Instead, read all those stories as this is a portrait of a human being who is conducting his life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that was all the theology stuff, and here's why it matters. All of that means that Jesus is the prototype for all of his followers. Remember, Jesus teaches us how to be human, not how to be God. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do miracles, and we, as his followers, can be anointed by the Holy Spirit to do the very same things. How do you know this? Jesus explicitly said so. Turn just a bit to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 14. There's a, a lot of Bible tonight. Um, not, I'm, I'm not sorry. I was about to apologize. I'm not sorry. You should be so lucky. But we're almost done. <laughs> Look alive. Let's read a small excerpt uh, from a larger teaching from Jesus. John 14, beginning with verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. So miracles, healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, even resuscitating dead people, much, much more, but it gets crazier. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, if you think about it, that's a weird thing for Jesus to say. The leading theory is that Jesus' promise was quantitative, not qualitative, meaning Jesus brings dead back people back to life. How in the world do you top that? What's even greater than that? So we think he's saying that he was one man in one place at a time, but we, his followers, the church, will fan out over the entire world to do the same types of things everywhere. So that meaning greater things than these. But really, no matter what Jesus means specifically by greater things, one thing is for sure, he sure as heck doesn't mean lesser things. This is my job, by the way, professional Christian, 
been to school to be a professional Christian and all that. So trust me when I tell you, greater things does not mean lesser things. How, how will we do greater things? Look at verse 13. Story goes on. I will do whatever you ask in my name. And by that, meaning anything you ask that is consistent with the character and teachings of Jesus, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name consistent with my way, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That to say, Jesus teaches, if you believe in me, you will do the things I do, miraculous things. In fact, you will do even more things via the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is exactly how Jesus is with us today so that we are not left as orphans. Jesus is still, to this day, Emmanuel, God with us. But how? He's not here in the flesh anymore. By the Spirit with and in us. Now, follow me. One book to the right in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're almost there. Don't give up. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. This is a story Ariel was reading from just moments ago. It begins this way, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, if you're new to the New Testament, don't feel bad. It is new. Uh, <laughs> if you're new to the story, Acts is a continuation of Luke's gospel, same author and everything. And notice he writes that Luke covered all that Jesus began to do and teach, which is fascinating because it implies that though Jesus has returned to the Father at this point, he is somehow going to continue to do and teach things. How? Skip down to verse 6. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? You're the Messiah. Are you going to do your thing, take the throne? What's next? Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So the Spirit that was on Mary, then Jesus, and now that same Spirit will be on Jesus followers. Now that's you and me, to be clear. And it goes on in verse 8, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, meaning you will act as living proof of what Jesus taught and did all over the world by doing the same exact things. And as the story carries on, that's exactly what happens. Turn a page or two to chapter 3 and look at one such story. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at, at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. How about another? Turn a page to chapter 5, and then read beginning with verse 12. Things are escalating. 
the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the town around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. One more time, turn to the right, chapter 8, just one more. Now, this is decades later. The church has been growing. It's now filled with men and women who have never even met Jesus nor heard Him teach personally, people like you and me, those who came into the story much later by other means, and look what's happening. Chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was great joy in that city. All that to say, here's the pattern from the text. When you read the biographies of Jesus' life, you read about Jesus doing miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then, when you read the subsequent stories of Jesus' followers, you read that they did miracles, they healed the sick, they cast out demons, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're feeling antsy or intimidated, relax. The call to action this evening will not be, okay, I think, I think you've heard enough. Go lay hands and raise the dead and, you know, drop in on vert ramps. Everybody could... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there it was. That's two. Now we're back on schedule. See you again in 2023. Is it 2022, right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Kiana's giving me a judging look. I don't appreciate that. It was a smile, but there was judgment there. This short series is not about whipping everyone into a frenzy and forcing you into awkward situations for which you're not prepared. Relax. For now, tonight, I want us to begin to wrap our heads around this from the Scriptures. The exact same power that was on and in Jesus and then in Peter and then in Philip and the early church is now in you. Now, of course, a statement like that is much easier to accept intellectually or in theory than it is practically. Maybe you follow Jesus and part of you can accept that in theory you have the same spirit, the same power in you, whatever that means. But experientially, experientially, you don't go around healing the sick or casting out demons. Heck, you're not even sure how to hear God's voice. Or forget all that, you're still wrapped up in a struggle against digital addiction or anxiety or porn, and you're thinking, where the heck is all this so-called power? And this is why the personhood of the Holy Spirit is, I think, so important. Because you can be in relationship with a person, not with a force or an idea. So all that New Testament writing about the Spirit's power is very, very true, but it is a person's power. It is not power drawn from a nebulous, abstract force. Here's an analogy I used a few years ago, and since we're bringing the skateboarding video back, it seemed permissible. I'll be honest, I've woven in some bonus content that's not part of the analogy, but it's funny, and that's important. It all starts with Patrick's shoes. It's his birthday after all, so we're going to talk about Patrick's shoes. Now, Patrick likes to wear his shoes until said shoes 
are good and done for. Like a hole in the toe is nothing, the shoes have to erupt and unravel until they can hardly said to be shoes at all. And a few years ago, Patrick's shoes uh, were, you know, on their last legs, so to speak. In fact, everyone was getting pretty mad about it. They're like, Take it, man, get rid of the shoes. They're like flopping off and everything. And uh, around that time, Cameron's car broke down one day while we were at our office working. So his faithful co-workers, Patrick and myself, we were summoned outside to push his car out of its parking spot up on a ramp onto a trailer so it could be towed away. And he was right to summon us. This was a task he could not complete solo. Even with the three of us, it was kind of an undertaking. Now, I know this because Patrick's shoes exploded from the effort. After the incident, he sent this video to us in memoriam. I like how it opens this way rather than this way. Yeah. Now, so you see, thanks, Garrett, no small undertaking. The strength necessary to push this car up this ramp, and it took several attempts, was enough to earn these shoes the the full Sarah McLaughlin send off. And by the way, that record, I know you're curious, uh, for legions of listeners that will be wondering, is pretty good. Surfacing, check it out. Uh, That thing sold 16 million copies. I looked it up for the purpose of this teaching. But listen, that is nothing compared to Hootie and the Blowfish. (laughs) That's right. Which sold 21 million copies of their debut in the U.S. alone. Sarah McLaughlin's record only sold 16 million worldwide. Man, that is no nothing to Hootie. Point is, neither Hootie nor Sarah nor Patrick's shoes are the point of that story. Point is, thank God that Cam had friends, friends much, much stronger than he is, to, to push his broken car. Now imagine if, instead of asking us to help, Cam just said to himself, he thought of us, and he thought, well, Patrick and Josh, they're pretty strong, so let me just kind of summon their strength into myself, and then he just sort of grimaced and he started pushing. It doesn't work that way because Patrick and I are not concepts or abstract forces from which to draw strength. We are people, and we are in relationship with Cam, so to get our help, he asks us, and then we help him push the car, and it goes where it needs to go. Cam was part of it, absolutely. He participated, but the majority of the work was being distributed elsewhere, believe me. (laughs) In the same way... As we grow in relationship with the Holy Spirit, we also grow in the Holy Spirit's power. And that means that there is a certain reciprocity or a a correlation between our closeness with the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit made manifest in our lives. Or, put it another more sobering way, there is a correlation between how we live and the level of the Holy Spirit's power active in our lives. And as an equation, it might sound something like this. Intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith equals power. Those are all loaded words, so let me offer a very brief commentary on each. First, intimacy with God. We talk about this all the time. Something we have to learn and to put into practice is the pursuit of living in an ongoing awareness of and connectedness to God Himself. You can call that practicing the presence of God. You can call it contemplation. You can call it abiding in the vine like Jesus did. Or you can call it prayer without ceasing in the language of the New Testament. Listening to 
learning from, bringing your mind and heart back to God again and again through the routine and joy and pain and mundanity of everyday life. And we talk about hearing God's voice, but it's about much more than what we do in listening prayer. Listening prayer is what we do at the end of almost every gathering. We say, let's make space, listen to God, ask questions. We wait in the silence. This is about an ongoing moment-by-moment communion with God Himself. John Wimber once wrote, When I speak of listening to God's voice, I mean developing a practice of communion with the Father in which we are constantly asking, Lord, what do you want me to do now? How do you want to use me? How should I pray? Who do you want me to evangelize? Is there somebody you want me to heal? Sometimes he gives me specific insights about people for who I am praying. These come as impressions, words, pictures in my mind's eye, physical sensations in my body to correspond to problem in their bodies. These impressions help me know who and what to pray for and how to pray. Now, I love his definition of what it means to listen to God, developing a practice of communion with the Father. Now, that sounds intimidating, But remember, it's not something that you just have one day. You practice small steps and you learn as you go. Working to bring your mind back to God throughout the ebb and flow of every day, learning to create rhythms for that very thing to happen more, not less. That's part one of the equation, intimacy with God. Next is holiness. Remember, Jesus calls calls God's Spirit, among other things, the Holy Spirit. But holy is, of course, you know, one of those Bible words we often say without knowing exactly what it means, or we say it meaning something other than the Bible means by the same word. Here's one very simple definition of the word holy, to be set apart for God's special purposes. Another way of understanding the word is as a synonym for unique. It's really that simple. So the pursuit of holiness is the work of beholding a culture a world that is often in defiant rebellion against the way of Jesus and then deliberately rejecting that status quo, meaning set apart, unique. So you see greed as an everyday aspect of life in our culture, scrambling for money, position. You see social media image curation, digital addiction. You see military violence and sociopolitical violence and animosity between the right and the left and hatred reaching for power over others. You see materialism and excess and lust and porn and hookups and polyamory. You see the quasi-progressive redefining of sexuality and gender and profile pronouns and virtue signaling. And you see all of this and you say, no. No to the status quo, the flesh, or what the New Testament calls the world, so that you become set apart or holy. In many ways, you may seem much like another given person, and that's fine and great, but when you get into it and you look at how you steward your money, or how you understand your enemies, or your sexual ethic, or your approach to parenting, or food, or smartphones, all of that Hopefully, you will be unique in the culture, or put simply, you will be set apart, holy. So that's the set-apart dimension of holiness, but it's not just that. You are set apart for God's special purposes. Holiness can mean dedicated to the Lord. So you are not set apart for uniqueness' sake. You are set apart for God. The reason that you reject consumerism and materialism is so that 
You can embrace simplicity and gratitude and generosity as obedience to Jesus. The reason that you reject violence and socio-political vitriol is so that you can love and bless your enemies upon the obedience of the teachings of Jesus and obedience to Jesus. The reason that you reject smartphone addiction and social media fabrications is so that you can embrace silence and solitude and honesty and self-awareness, integrity, be present to God, to your family, to your community. You're not just not doing something. You're not doing something so that you can do something else. And that something else is very, very different. That's what it means to pursue holiness. And there's a correlation between holiness and how much of the Spirit's power is at work in and through us. Now, don't think of this as a tit-for-tat kind of thing. Think of it relationally. The idea is not, oh, well, you know what? You didn't read your Bible enough this week, so the Holy Spirit is not going to show up for you. You didn't pay, so He's not going to pay. And it's not, oops, you made a mistake. You were dishonest, so no Spirit for you. This is a relational exchange. So Patrick and I didn't go push Cam's car because we evaluated how many things he had done for us versus what he had done against us, and we found the results were passable, and we decided to help him. We helped him based on relational factors. He knew where we were at the time. He knew how and when to ask us. He knew our day and our schedule. He knew how we communicate with one another. We knew what he needed. We knew why. And we're friends. We're not estranged from one another. We're in good standing. We have relational equity. We look after one another. So he asked. We showed up. This means consistently practicing the way of Jesus, obeying the teachings of Jesus, is how we grow in holiness and thus grow in the power of the Holy Spirit. This also means that every opportunity to disobey Jesus or to sin is adversely an opportunity to grow in intimacy with God's Spirit and to access His power in your life. When you have money and you earned it, so you want to keep it and you want to spend it on you, clothes for you, Netflix for you, nice stuff for your house, whatever, but instead you give to the poor, to justice, to the church, the family of God. You divest funds to buy someone else dinner or sponsor a kid or help someone in your community. When you're tired and your mind feels dull and you want to poke mindlessly at a smartphone feed, but instead you turn it off and put it away and you look your kids or your spouse or your friends in the eye and you talk or you sit in the quiet with God. When you want to linger on the image of a beautiful man or woman, to turn them into fodder for your imagination, for lust, and compare them, or play who's hottest, or transforming people made in God's image into objects. But instead, you honor them, and you remember them as people, not things. When you badly want to join in with a group of friends who are, with their words, eviscerating someone who isn't there, someone so frustrating, gossiping behind the veneer of venting, but you don't, and you bless them instead and pray for them. When you're alone and no one would know and it's just you and a phone or a laptop and you want to wander into certain corners of the internet, but you close the computer. Each opportunity to do evil is also an opportunity to grow in holiness and in the power of the Spirit. Intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith equals power. In 26 of the 29 healing stories throughout the Gospels, faith is mentioned. 
Just crazy. Your faith has made you well because of your faith. I have not found such great faith. And on and on the list goes. Jordan Singh writes, God's main goal is to encourage us to trust His love. So it makes perfect sense that He would arrange things so that power flows most easily through those who most fully trust His compassionate generosity in providing it. So I'd put it this way. Miracle-working faith believes that God is genuinely eager for the goodness of miracles. Miracle-working faith believes that God is genuinely eager for the goodness of miracles. And faith, please hear me when I say this, is not trying to psych yourself up to believe something. It's not like there's a little thermometer hovering over you and you have to make the red part hit the top and then pray and then the miracle will be pulled off. Faith is about learning to, over time, trust that God wants to do good stuff, and then demonstrate your trust in your willingness to believe such a thing. How do you do that? Usually by risking something. So when my kids have a stomach ache and I lay my hands on their little stomachs and I pray, you know, in the name of Jesus, all pain be gone, you know, stomach be healed and restored. We do this all the time. Am I 100% convinced that the pain will stop no matter what? No, because sometimes it doesn't. But I do have faith that God wants to heal, so I step out. When We do this in my house so much now that whenever I mention any physical discomfort, i like, oh, I have a headache, or oh, my knee feels weird. My kids, both of them, that, well, I'm sure, you know, Arlo, he doesn't rush to anything right now. He's just a blob. <laughs> but the two kids that walk and speak, uh, they rush to me, they lay hands on me, and they pray healing in Jesus' name. And they know experientially that sometimes the pain ceases immediately, and sometimes it does not. But they ask anyway, and they are not hung up on the both and, which is incredible. That, you know, Jesus guy, he was really onto something, using children as an example of the most prepared to accept the kingdom. They have never been deterred by non-immediate results. I've been following Jesus for long enough now that I've prayed for my fair share of people. I've seen some truly outrageous things happen, things that I am not make, making up. I you know, did not grow up in a charismatic background. These were new to me as an adult. I have seen miraculous stuff happen. I really have stuff that defies explanation. And I've also prayed or been prayed for with no immediate or discernible results at all, at least not that I could see or that I knew of. So I know that it's not a game of some try, somehow trying to convince yourself of, you know, these results are going to happen just to get God to show up in the first place. It is learning to trust that whatever happens, God wants to do stuff, so you step out and you ask. Every time someone stands up here on a Sunday evening and says something really specific like, hey, we get a sense that there might be a single mom here who's struggling with the death in the family or whatever it might be, something really generic, someone here struggling with their faith or wants to grow in intimacy, we know we could be off. We're people, we get it wrong, but it could be from God, so we give it a shot. I've prayed for people before, and I have felt this strong sense of something very specific, and even though it's embarrassing, I speak up, and I have seen people brought to tears and repentance and renewal by that kind of thing, by the level of specificity, and oh my God, God knew that, and He told you, and you told me, and I've seen them smile and nod politely and go, huh, I, I'll pray about it, I guess, which means, no, that is not for me, you know. <laughs> but you risk, you have faith, 
and you risk. Intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith equals power. And of course, conversely, no intimacy, no holiness, no faith, no power. Now, this is not a rigid black and white guarantee per se, but as a general rule, I think it works a bit like that. Now, here's the thing to end tonight. Thank you for hanging in there with me. All of this can, if you let it, sound a bit daunting. I know. But don't think of this as some far-fetched standard beyond your reach. Oh my God, you're talking about miracles and healing. Think of this instead as the entry point, meaning start here. If you want the power of the Holy Spirit made manifest in your life, not to do magic tricks. Who cares about magic tricks? Zach, did you guys know Zach can do magic tricks? Maybe he cares. He's giving me nothing. There he is. Okay, great. He's acknowledging me. Nobody cares about magic tricks. You want for the Holy Spirit anyway. I actually sincerely care about Zach's magic tricks. Very impressive. You want the power of the Holy Spirit, not just to go out and perform miracles and heal somebody. That sounds amazing. But you want to experience God's intimacy in your life made manifest. Who doesn't want to be able to pray for someone they love and say, God told me this about you and have them experience God's intimacy through you as a conduit? Don't you want that for your kids and your friends and your family and the rest of your church community. You want God's closeness. And I know that we want His healing power, the sound of His voice. We want His guidance and wisdom. We want His arms around us in pain and chaos. We want that in the ordinary rhythms of our life as a parent, a spouse, a friend, in your vocation and your hopes and dreams for your future. I know I do. Maybe I seem like an easy candidate because, you know, I lead a church, and yes, of course, I want more of God's Spirit as a pastor and a Bible teacher, no question. But honestly, I want more of God's Spirit in every facet of life as I think to the future and raise my kids and navigate community and relationships and react to the madness of the world and celebrate victory, endure hardship and mourn and grieve and suffer. I want to be someone who is consistently empowered by the Spirit of God in all of it. And if you're like me, if you want all that, then start here. Intimacy with God, holiness, and faith equals power. Pursue intimacy with God. Start wherever you're at. Pursue time for Him, prayer in the morning or before bed. Carve out rhythms to make that happen. Create a rule of life. Start tomorrow morning. Be holy. Be unique, different. Pursue obedience. If there's something that you need to repent of, repent. Don't just gripe about your lack of intimacy with Jesus. Do the things He said to do. Don't do the things he said not to do. Seek him. If you mess up, confess, repent, turn around, and then risk. Ask God for stuff. Listen. Act on what you hear. Pray. Pray for people. Ask God to speak in and through you. Tell people what you think God might be saying with humility and understanding that, of course, you can be off. But try it. Use your community. Use your church family as guinea pigs. I will never... Never feel bummed or put out by someone coming to me in humility and saying, listen, Josh, I could be wrong, but I think this is something God is saying to you. Are you kidding? More of that. I will always happily accept that. I will listen and I will pray about it as well. My guess is that many of you feel the exact same way. What better, safer place to risk than here with the community of God? The promise of Jesus is you will receive power when the Spirit is on you. What if we actually believed that that was true? Or here's a scarier and more exciting question. What if we lived as though that were actually true? So let me pray for a fresh filling of God's Spirit as we begin to respond to Him in worship.
Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.